Last week, um, we, we read this passage and a little bit before it. And we talked about the incompatibility of enmity. This, this, I don't even know, we call it a sin, but, and it is, but this thing that is baked into who we are through, the, through those powers of the world and the devil and the flesh. But how in Christ, we are one body. And as one body, we are called to stop. We are called not to see one another, not to see our neighbor as enemies, as other, but actually to love. Um, And I made the claim that this is important, that it is essential, that it is as as much a part of what it is to be holy and righteous in Christ as anything else that we could name. Today I wanted to deep dive into this new connection just in this, this last part of that passage. Paul, Paul pushes into this idea of us being one. By, by naming these relationships that we are a part of in Christ. And he calls us co-citizens. He calls us members of the same family. And then he calls us the new temple of God. And in naming these national and then familial and then spiritual connection, Paul actually pulls on an Old Testament narrative that we have to touch on really quickly. And second... Samuel 7, there's this interaction between David and God. See, David had achieved all these great things as the king of Israel. And David has this moment, as David does, where he's kind of reflecting on everything. And he says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Because his kingdom has, you know, just exploded and, you know, the God is still being worshipped in the tabernacle. And so David expresses his desire to build a temple for God, to build a permanent dwelling place for the ark and for the worship of God. And God's response to David uh, through the prophet is surprising. God says, No. He refuses David's offering. But instead of accepting the offering, he turns it around and makes another promise to David. And what he says in a nutshell is that, David, your nation, Israel, will always have a king. And David, it will be your family, it will be your son that will be their king forever. And it is that son who will build the temple. We call this the Davidic covenant. It's a representation of that wonderful covenant of grace that we're all under in Christ. Where God makes this powerful promise to David concerning his nation, his family, and the dwelling place of God. It's language that David doesn't quite understand. 
But it's also language that Paul here uses to punctuate this radical claim that we talked about last week, that in the resurrection, we are one body. We are united. In fact, in Christ, we are this nation, this family, and this temple that had been promised to David. This has huge implications. It means so much to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That that is something more than just a me and Jesus kind of a relationship. It's actually the practice of community together. It requires something more even than last week's charge of rejecting enmity. It's actually a charge for us to grow together in Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to. Because the all-surpassing power of God expressed for us, particularly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, brings us into new lives and new relationships. And Paul is insistent that we understand this. Remember, Paul told us last week that outside of the work of Christ, we were strangers and aliens. Strangers and aliens. Keller, who I'm borrowing from liberally today, talks about being an alien as finding oneself in a setting where you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, and you are truly alone. Then he suggests this is actually how we all walk through life. I think he's right. I think that deep down, when we are the most honest with ourselves, very few of us would deny that claim. Because actually all the problems that the gospel names are things that we all experience. The details vary in each of our lives. We know, we all know, Everyone that I've ever talked to at some point in their, in their life would acknowledge that we are broken, that our relationships are broken, that our world is broken. We know that we have longings that we can't satisfy. And we know that who we want to be and who we actually are are stupidly difficult to reconcile and we know loneliness. That's kind of what we're picking at today. That loneliness. We all experience this tension of living among so many others, but feeling utterly alone. To be a sea of persons, but not a people. And it doesn't make any sense I shouldn't feel alone. I have a wonderful family, immediate and extended. I live now, I lived previously in a vibrant community and I live now in another vibrant community. I surround myself with people. I share interests and hobbies and passions. But at the end of the day, I feel pretty alone. And honestly, even if we, end, we succeeded in ending enmity, if we did that across the board, 
chances are that wouldn't make us feel connected. Sometimes it would make us feel even more alone. Because that us versus them bond that I've created with folks goes away when enmity goes away. And in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm generalizing, I have to generalize the Pacific Northwest now. You're going to learn some things about Eugene through this process. But this is especially a problem for us Pacific Northwesterners. We live in a culture that is built and defined by a leave-me-alone mentality that exacerbates our loneliness. We celebrate individualism and independence and this intense, I don't know, me-ness of life. I don't know if you know anything about Eugene, where I'm from, but we took this Pacific Northwest individuality and turned it up to 11. Um, it's been argued that places, that our little corner of Oregon is maybe the most individualistic society that has existed in the history of humanity. It's a huge claim. One of my professors in Portland made that claim, and I was like, wow, man, and then I started thinking about it. I don't know that it's wrong. But the rest of the Pacific Northwest is not far off. <laughs> so addressing the loneliness, this kind of loneliness that we have inside us in the way that Paul calls us to is actually very difficult for us because it means unlearning so much of who we are at our core. We are expert strangers and aliens. But even the most ruggedly individualistic of us, we have to admit that the loneliness gets to us. And so we try and fix it. We find a tight group of friends, or we surround ourselves with as many casual friends as we can find. Or we address it in our intimate relationships. We marry and we have kids. Or on the other side, we find connection with sexual partners all over the place. We try and work on ourselves so that we can connect better. Or we just try and convince ourselves that we don't need connection the way that we feel that we do. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of it really works. We still feel alone. We all do. Even when we feel like we're really close to finding love or community or family, there's always a measure of detachment. And why is that? Well, you should know the pastor's answer by now. Our world is broken. Sin entered the world and it created a rift, not just between me and God, but also between me and everybody else. Hey, that's what God tells me in this story here. And I don't know, you might not agree with that. You may not see that as the why. But I know that in your heart you agree that it is a problem. 
And I'll tell you what, sin is the only why that I've found that explains that problem. A brokenness of how it's supposed to be explains that problem. And Paul wants to make sure that we remember, right? Remember, remember that you're aliens and strangers, all of you. But his message to the believers in Ephesus, his message to everyone who comes to know Jesus, is that this is no longer true in the person of Jesus Christ. Because as he previously claimed, we have been made one body in Christ. The two have been made one. Us has been turned into me in Jesus Christ. And here he doubles down, describing our new relationship in this increasingly intimate language. You are fellow citizens. You are members of the same household. You are growing into a holy temple. And this description of a relationship creates this vibrant picture of what it actually means to walk together as the people of God. And... It makes the important claim that Jesus himself is the son of David that 2 Samuel promised. And the people and the family in the temple that are promised, he came to fulfill them and he fulfills them in the church. And that's incredibly important, not just because there's deep theological implications there about how we read Old Testament promises, something we're not going to go into today. But also because it means that if you wanted to follow Jesus Christ alone, that's not an option. And that's something we desperately need to hear in the church today. If you wanted to follow Jesus Christ alone, just you and Jesus, that's not an option. He doesn't give it to us. By following him, you have been implicated in this people of promise in this family of promise and in this corporate spirituality that was promised in the Old Testament. You're implicated in it. Being one body means so much more than just living in peace with one another. It actually means living with one another. As a part of one another, implicated in one another's lives. And regardless of whether you're one of those people who celebrate your aloneness as a good Pacific Northwesterner, or whether you just despise it and you're tired of being alone, this holds implications for how you interact with your brothers and sisters and the people around you. If you are that, you know, good Pacific Northwesterner and you are proudly on your own, you're in that you be you and I'll be me crowd, you're that I'd rather just live out in the woods kind of a person. If you really want that kind of solitude and autonomy, too bad. You can't have that here. Following Jesus into what he's called you to is following Jesus into citizenship and accountability and vulnerability and enjoying one another. It's just what he calls us to. 
It is not good for man to be alone. But on the other hand, if you feel like, you know what, I'm sick of the the loneliness and I've done all these things to build these structures of connection in my life, maybe you feel like you've had some success mitigating it. And in that, you find yourself deeply devoted to, I don't know, family or friends or your social groups or your nation or whatever. There's trouble for you too. Because you're going to have to find, you're going to have to see the call to actually subordinate these old relationships to the ones that you're being called to. Jesus tells us that anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We could expand that and say anyone who loves his nation more than me is not worthy than me. Or anyone who loves his social group more than me is not worthy than me. Anyone who loves his friends is more than me is not worthy of me. And before you object to me leveraging you know, I was supposed to love Jesus more than everyone else into a sermon about how we care for each other. Remember, we've already talked about this. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are in Christ. We are his body. To love Christ is to love the church. In him, we are implicated in one another's lives. And Paul uses these Old Testament categories to show us this. We are citizens of a new kingdom. We are members of a new family. We are the actual bricks and mortar of a new temple where God dwells. Keller very neatly looks at these three calls as having particular implications to the life of believers. I think they're a bit more interconnected, but the implications help, and it's good for us to look at them. Citizenship means something. It means responsibility. It means accountability. It means allegiance. Again, this might be hard for us to imagine as Pacific Northwesterners. But in all other societies, (laughs) citizenship implicates people to the common good and flourishing of the communities that they're a part of. That's what it means to be a citizen. And as citizens of Christ's revolutionary, already but not yet community, it means that we are to seek the good and flourishing of one another in the church and in God's being made new world around us. It means not seeing things as their problem. It means supporting the work of the church, not just with your wallets, but with your time and your effort. It means being unified in our passions and goals and hopes, as well as our grief and our pain and our lament. It means seeing Christ's kingdom as your kingdom before any other allegiance. Something you're going to learn about me probably, particularly going into an election cycle. I can get really cranky about Christians overly enmeshing themselves with one political movement or another. Things like Christian nationalism or any other one of these things. 
not because we don't care about what's going on in our world around us, but because what we should care about the society that we live in, about its flourishing, we should care. Our allegiance is to Christ above everything else. Our true citizenship is in his kingdom. And that's important for us to understand. Citizenship also means understanding that what I do affects you as much as it affects me. Therefore, seeking to do things that bring you and our community shalom, peace, flourishing. That's what I'm called to do. We are citizens and we're implicated in the life of this kingdom that we are in. But it gets more intimate than that. He calls us members of a household, brothers and sisters. This means something radical. It means vulnerability. It means knowing one another. It means whole life hospitality. See, citizens have to care about the whole, and they have to get close-ish. But siblings are way closer. We have a bigger space than we did in Eugene. Hallelujah. But in Eugene, we lived in this really small space, which meant that the five of us were on top of each other all the time. Not to mention, we're kind of one of those big personality families. That means that we've had to be very vulnerable with one another. Like, we know each other's ugliest sides. We see how life has wounded us, and we feel it. We see the scars that we carry. We experience one another's hurts and joys and anxieties. And Christian life together, hospitality looks like family hospitality. And family hospitality doesn't mean opening our doors. It means sharing everything. Bunk beds and a one bathroom and invasive noise kind of hospitality. How often do our relationships in the church look like this? We should know one another, not just the good parts. We should be sharing our struggles and confessing our sins and naming our hurts and our wounds and acknowledging our fears and our doubts and bearing one another's burdens. And at the same time, we should be sharing our joys and excitements. We should be rooting for one another. Helping each other realize our potential and achieving our goals. Our homes should be open. Our schedules should be flexible. Our resources should be leveraged for one another. We are a family. Now that's funny. Churches our size love to characterize themselves as a family. We're like a family. But very rarely... Does it come anywhere close to living with this kind of intimacy and vulnerability? But I'm convinced that this is what it means to be members of the household of God. 
And if that wasn't enough, we're told that we're being built into a temple which has huge implications that we could talk about for hours. It means things about our theology. It means things about our eschatology. But Paul's point here isn't particularly touching on those academic areas. Except that he does want to insist that what Jesus is doing in Ephesus and here in Mount Vernon are integral to his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's your theological takeaway. But what it really means for our community, Keller calls this a corporate spirituality. It's a little bit stiff, but it, it gets the point across. And I think in our individualized Western church, particularly our Pacific Northwest church, we maybe do this worse than any of the rest of them. We've created this personal relationship kind of walking with Jesus. And of course, there's a pers personal part of it. Our coming to Christ is intensely personal. He saw me. I saw him. But our life in him is not this personal me and Jesus thing. It is an us thing. It is a we thing. There's a thing expressed, I had a former pastor who would talk about the fact that, you know, particularly out here, we don't have a plural you. If you're from the South, you have a plural you. But in English, it's not a plural you. In Hebrew and in Greek, there were. And it's used pretty exclusively in scripture. There's very few times where you get the singular that says something. <laughs> but we are called to worship him as a people. That's why this, what we're doing right here, matters. Like it's not just marking off Sunday and making sure you read your Bible and maybe humming a few hymns and praying. That's why we need to be here. And listen, I want this to be a place where you can come as you are that doesn't shame or judge you for where you are in your life, that celebrates your place in the community. And if you're not able to make it one week, or like, I don't want those to be issues for us. I've been in those places. It gets a little bit gross. But you are called to a community. I'm not going to criticize you for coming in late. I'm not going to call you out for missing services when life was just too much. I'm not going to question you for protecting your health or the health of those around you. But ultimately, you're called to be here. This is how God is worshipped. And you need this. And quite frankly, we need you. We're called to sing together. We're called to pray together. We're called to confess together, to hear the word together, to receive the sacraments together. And listen, if, there are real, if you're at home and there are real things that are keeping you from being physically present, please don't hear shame in this. That's not what I'm trying to do. You need to hear me say that's okay. But I pray that you still reach out and connect with your brothers and sisters more than just zooming in on Sundays. And I'm hoping that in the coming weeks we can find ways to connect and to talk about how you can feel more plugged in even with the, with the limitations that you have. Because this is important for us.
And actually, this, all, this goes far beyond worship. We're called to live our whole spiritual lives together. Sure, you walk with Jesus even when you're alone. You read the word alone and you pray alone and sometimes you worship alone. And, and that should be a desire for you even when you're alone. But we should also be doing things together, not just here. Not to mention we should be together, like to eat and to tell stories and to play and to grow as a community together. Maybe most importantly, we grow together. That's right here, right? In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Like, hear me. The men and women and children sitting next to you are an integral part of your growth and your sanctification. Those last two questions that we asked today. They're a little stuffy in church language, and they talk about things like discipline. But that's what they're getting at. Like, they are implicated in our lives, and we are implicated in their lives. And if we're going to grow, we're going to grow together. If you are walking alone with Jesus, I don't think you can expect a lot of growth. I'll just say it that clearly. And I'm basing that on theology and very personal experience. Here's a story. I know I'm long, but it's a good story, and I'm going to tell it. C.S. Lewis, Jack to his friends, because who wants to be called Clive Staples? I don't know. He tells a story about his close friend group, which was him and Ronald and Charles. And they were best friends. They did everything together. And then Charles died. And Lewis, in his grief, trying to console himself, said, well, at least I have Ronald. And if anything, we'll be closer than we ever were. But he was wrong. As time went on, Lewis realized that he didn't have more of Ronald. He actually felt that he had less of Ronald. Because there was a part of Ronald that Charles brought out. And that part was lost to Lewis. Man, that's telling. We live in a community and we need each other to know each other well. And if that's true, how much more is that true for our knowledge of an infinite God? You and I, we, we have a better knowledge of God, of Jesus, of his work, as we walk with one another. This is always the case. This has always been the case. God said in the beginning that it was not good for man to be alone. And that was man before the fall. <laughs> like that was while well, things were still good. When he walked openly with God, one on one in the garden, and it was not good for man to be alone. 
And Christ, because of the immeasurable power that we gained in his resurrection, <clears throat> excuse me, that has made us new people, a new person. In him, we have been knit together in the most intimate of ways, called to life that is explicitly not alone, a faith that is explicitly not alone. We are in this together. And surely, as I probably say every week that I preach, I realize that this doesn't just change things. I'm still kind of lonely. I know you are too. And, and I do want to say, like, it's good for me to point out where the church is doing good. And what I will tell you, personally, I've experienced less loneliness since coming to Grace. So you can take that for what it's worth. But it's still here. There's still this pers persistent loneliness and tension. In hearing that we've been resurrection into these new relationships, children, siblings, pieces of the temple of Christ, but most days I kind of just want to be left alone. Or even when I'm with you, I feel disconnected. And as with everything else that we struggle with in this life, as humans, and doubly, I think, as followers of Jesus. It's not as simple as, tell me, pastor, what to do. It's about struggle. One where the stubborn powers of the world and the devil and the flesh keep telling us that we are strangers from God and from one another. Even when we know that that's not true, they keep telling us that we're strangers. And while the work of Christ has been done, it is done. <laughs> if you know Jesus and believe and follow him, you are risen, you are reconciled, you are joined to one another. The realization of this, man, it works itself out through our whole lives. I think this is one of the reasons that Paul pictures our relationship in this way, in this kind of each step is a deeper connection kind of a way. Community, family, temple. Being citizens gives us moderate connection to our fellow citizens and to our king. Being siblings gives us a stronger connection to our siblings and to our father. And then being the building blocks of his temple gives us a deeply intimate connection to these fellow building blocks and to the God who dwells within us. I think that's how we grow, often slowly. But the point is we need to strive to grow in this. Paul actually shows us how to do this really quick. He says, this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There are three things he gives us here. The apostles and prophets. This is code for the scriptures. Generally speaking, when you see something about the apostles and prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, the scriptures gives us the truth of the love of God expressed to us. And so we grow together as in all things by hearing and learning and knowing the truth of the story of God's love for us, his word, particularly when we do that together. The second, it says, 
Now these are building blocks, but Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus is the gracious incarnation of that love. And where the scriptures are cognitive, offering the word of God, Jesus is something deeper. He's a spiritual, relational, and experiential revelation to us. Where we encounter the word in Jesus Christ, we see it face to face. And how do we know Jesus today? Through trust in the grace of his gospel. Through the experiential um, sign of it that we're given in the sacraments. Through these things we grow together. But finally, it tells us that we are joined together. We are built up together, and this speaks of fellowship itself. We learn to be one by practicing being one. By seeing the truth of the love of God and the grace of Jesus in in the lives of our brothers and sisters, especially as we live, serve, and worship with them. Little practical applications to this spiritual mystery, if that's what you like. If knowing Jesus is, is essential for spirit, for this transformation, as John suggests, where do people come in contact with Jesus today? Like, just practically. All right, great, I have to come face to face with Jesus. Problem. <laughs> Well, there is a place that we come face to face with Jesus in his flesh, in his body today. Because Paul tells us that Jesus is the head of his body, the church. That makes us the physical embodiment of Jesus in this world. And we should picture Jesus to our neighbors and to one another as clearly as anything else. And as we live together and grow together and see Jesus Christ in our brothers and sisters, we will be drawn towards the body in the way that Paul has described here. And we must be. Because we've been called by Jesus. If we have been called by Jesus, we are called in this kind of radical relationship with one another. Out of the loneliness of being aliens and strangers, into lives as a people, a family, and a temple in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone in our brokenness, but that you have called us and redeemed us and restored us to a community. I pray, God, that this particular church, that grace would embody this that she would grow in her love for one another, that she would be built together into your temple, the way that Paul describes here. We thank you, God, that you are already doing that work. We pray these things for the sake of your glory and your kingdom, in the name of your Son, amen.